Good evening, everybody. My name is Ryan Miner. You're listening to a minor detail on blogtalkradio.com. And here I am again. It's election season, so that means we have so many different candidates coming on the show. Tonight, I have a really great candidate. Her name is Dr. Nadia Hashimi. She's running for Congress in Maryland's 6th Congressional District, and I'm going to go ahead and welcome her to the show. Dr. Hashimi, nice to have you on tonight. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Hey, well, welcome. I'm, you're, you're, busy, you're a busy person, aren't you? I see you everywhere, and it's, it's a mess. I, I, and, and by that I mean <laughs> I, have, I would have absolutely no, um, no spark in me to want to go all over this district. I mean, it's a great place to be, but you have just limitless energy to do what you're doing. And uh, I give you a lot of credit. Anybody who runs, I give you so much credit. But welcome for the first time. Um, I'm glad to have you on. The election is in a few days. Early voting has already started. June 26th is election day. And here we are. You have run a spectacular campaign based entirely on important issues that are that will directly affect Maryland 6th Congressional District, Dr. Nadia. And I got to tell you, um, just watching this race as, a, as an observer, um, as a resident of the 6th District, um, you have been one of the most fascinating candidates because you have come out of nowhere. And by that, I mean, you've, you, you're new to the process. You're not, you know, necessarily... You weren't involved with the Democratic machine politics. Uh, you're an outsider. And you know what? Maybe we need a few more doctors in the United States House of Representatives. I think you would agree with that. Uh, I would definitely agree with that. And and that's one of the main reasons that I stepped up. You know, it's – and I have to say, Ryan, as, as busy as I am, you're just as busy because everywhere that I go, I'm seeing you there. So I give you a lot of credit for covering everything that's happening in Maryland and, and giving people sometimes a, a fresh angle on what's going on on the landscape. Um, and I yeah. think everyone appreciates that. So, um, you know, your, your work is, is nothing short of helping people really get engaged as well. No, I appreciate that. It's, yeah. it's a hobby. And, you know, I have a, a passion for this, just as you have a passion for helping others, for uh, practicing medicine, and for important healthcare issues that you have focused your campaign on. So let's start at the beginning. Yeah. And I want to talk about you, the person, your narrative. It's so fascinating because you, like I said, you're, you're a political outsider. You haven't run for public office in the past, you're new to this magnanimous political process. You grew up in New Jersey. You're a first-generation American. Talk to me about your upbringing. Talk to me about your parents and what it was like to grow up in New Jersey to two entrepreneurs. And I believe your parents came from, uh, was it, is it Afghanistan? Yep, they came from Afghanistan in the early 70s. They came here really as economic migrants. And then the situation in Afghanistan really fell apart. And so they ended up staying and establishing long-term roots here. And their entire lives have been, um, have really been about building their, their, their homes, their, their um, extending the family here. And so my brother and I grew up with, you know, this, this, not a dual identity, but a really first-generation American experience where we did have pieces of the Afghan culture in our home, of course, because my parents were born and raised in that country. Um, and it was very interesting for me to watch my parents 
find their path to become part of America and to live out that American dream. And it happens in really small but significant ways, like my mom becoming a Girl Scout troop leader. And so I've got pictures of us, you know, marching in parades. Um, but that was something that she purposely decided that she wanted to um, take on that, le- that role so that she could help figure out what it meant to be an American citizen, what it would mean for me to be involved, to get engaged. And so those were the small steps that my parents took to really uh, make a big difference. Yeah, at an early age, I know that your parents instilled a value of hard work and to that and the value of a dollar. And in fact, on your website, you talk about your father and he has this just this beautiful quote on your website, um, which is NadiaHashimid.com. And it says, my father once told me he would go hungry before he would take a penny from my education fund. Then you talk about your mother um, becoming a civil engineer in Afghanistan when few women did so. And you said those beginnings taught me to not uh, to take no opportunity for granted. When you were a young child, you worked in your parents' deli. Talk about that experience and how that shaped your life outlook. Yeah, it's, it was, I mean, those are my formative years, and I grew up watching my dad work in his, you know, fried chicken stores, so I was behind the counter when he was doing that, and then by the time I was 12 is when my ter- my parents bought a deli, and, and you know, when you're, when it's a family business, then child labor laws don't really come into effect, but it was a really good experience. I mean, I learned how to work long days. 14-hour days were pretty routine for us, standing on our feet, making coffee, but getting to know everybody in our town. Uh, because we were that corner store and like a literal mom and pop corner store. So the value of hard work, um, you know, what it means to earn a dollar, how I, I can, I could make my own budget from the time that I was, you know, a st- from middle school into high school, I, I, I learned how to budget for myself. Um, those are really important lessons that I learned from that experience, but just also understanding that, you know, you got to put in the hours, you got to put in the work. And I think that's what, makes what I'm doing now a bit easier because I do it with my family. So this is almost like a family enterprise itself. It's a family project. And we're all very comfortable with doing hard work when we know that we're, we're doing it for a good purpose and we're doing it together. Yeah. And speaking of family, you have a, a big one. And I think you have four children of your own. And they're, what are their age ranges? My oldest is seven. And then I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old and a two-year-old. Okay, enjoy that. Enjoy that while I'm <laughs> we, Oh, you should see bedtime at our house. It is a fiasco. Just yeah, but that's the best. And, you know what? As as a parent, I, I got to tell you, having young, our kids are um, going. One is going into sixth grade, and another's going into high school. And our, you know, God bless him. He's at that stage because he's he's too cool for us. But he's growing. Yeah. He's developing his own identity. But nonetheless, he's still ours. He's still our little baby. And then our girl, um, our, you know, our daughter, she is uh, also growing into a young woman um, with opinions and thoughts about politics. And she, uh, she does not hesitate to speak her mind, which is very refreshing. And she doesn't take any gruff from anybody. And she's just a young, independent woman. It's just so fascinating watching small people grow and developing just – such these unique identities. And I think that's the most interesting thing about parenting is watching your kids grow into their own self and become um, leaders and someone and, and just people. And it's just, it's so fascinating to me. 
Yeah. And that, you know, we, we do that in, in any aspect when we're raising our children and other families I'm sure can relate. What's been really amazing for me during this campaign is to see the way my kids have engaged in it and what they're getting out of the process as well. So, you know, from the eight-year-old to the seven-year-old, they're learning new lingo. They're talking about town halls. They're talking about, uh, you know, what kinds of changes they want to see in gun policies. And they're also learning the process of campaigning. So they go out canvassing with us. They've knocked on doors. Uh, when my husband comes home, they'll say, hey, Daddy, how many doors did you hit? So they've got the language down. Um, they know lawn signs. I got an email the other day from uh, of my daughter's friend's mom, and she said, um, Nadia, Zayla asked if we could put a lawn sign up, so I have to talk to my HOA to make sure it's okay with them, but I'd like to go ahead and do it. So she's, I didn't know she'd made that request. So, you know, here they are on the school bus, and my, my seven-year-old is talking about lawn signs. So it's, it's been really cool to see it through their eyes because they're, they're getting engaged. And we see that more and more across the country where young people are, are getting engaged in new ways. And that's, I think, really refreshing and inspiring. Man, put those kids to work. Like, take them door to door. Oh, I do. Let them go. That's what we do. <laughs> that's what we do. I mean, we, <laughs> listen, that's a, I grew up with that kind of mentality and we're doing the same thing. But it's good for them. It is. We, uh, you know, we've, we've worked on campaigns and friends of ours who have run for office, we, we put the kids to work and they hand out literature, they sign wave, they door knock and do uh, mailers and all kinds of kitchen table stuff where they're, they're helping out stuff in envelopes. And it, it is fascinating to see the kids, it, when you introduce them to the political process, they, they take they, they take it on themselves and try to learn as much as possible. And our son loves to read about political history, about, yeah, he has so many books about the Kennedys and, and Ronald Reagan and just different periods of time in American history. And having those conversations with him, it's enlightening because we can sit and talk and have a, an adult conversation. And that's important. Your kids are going to remember this for the rest of their lives. And this is going to be, uh, and maybe I hope one day they run. They they should run for office one day. You can encourage them. I hope so. And and if anyone tries to run against my daughter, I, I wish them good luck because, uh, <laughs> they, you know, I I was telling her one day, I said, you know, you're just complaining too much. And she said, Mom, I'm not complaining. I'm explaining. And she went on to provide a very sound argument for why she was right on, on that particular issue. So um, they're definitely, having watched the different forums that they've been to, they're in position. Oh, that's good. That's great. That's funny too. What be what was the spark that encouraged you to begin your education process and then ultimately become a pediatrician? So when I was in college, I decided to volunteer uh, my summers at a camp for families that were affected by HIV. Uh, it was sort of a respite program for these families. And the, the camps had uh, people of all ages, so the entire family would come. Sometimes it was a child with a grandparent. Sometimes it was a mom with two kids uh, or a mom and a dad and their children or whatever kind of configuration of family it was. And someone in the family was diagnosed with HIV in some stage. And I worked with the children at that camp. Some of them were diagnosed with HIV, others were not, but their family members were. And it was such a profound experience to start to understand the way social factors weighed in on uh, what was going on in a, in a family's way of managing a diagnosis and one as, as severe and as stigmatized as HIV. And so those three summers were really formative for me that really impacted me in a way that I thought, you know, I really wanna work with families like this. I wanna have a role in, in that. And I had a love for the sciences anyway. I really like working with people. 
And so medicine was a natural for me. And of course, uh, my natural fit within the world of medicine was working in pediatrics. Yeah, I, uh, you know, the pediatrician that I went to, you always remember who that person is. Um, I still talk to my childhood pediatrician because he lives in my hometown of Hagerstown and uh, our kids. Um, it is truly a remarkable career. And when I was a kid, I thought maybe I could be a doctor. And then my parents were like, no, you should be a lawyer because you're much better at arguing a point, even if it's wrong and sticking to it. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm like, well, you know, and then I, I didn't become either. In fact, I went into business instead in, in, in kind of a startup technology world, but, and this is my hobby, as you can probably tell, and I think there's still an opportunity here to practice law in some capacity, and if I would do that, I would probably do it in the form of um, maybe a First Amendment law, because that's my passion, but you also, aside from being a pediatrician, um, let me just question, where is your practice, Dr. Nadi? Are you in, are you here in Maryland or in D.C.? No, so I'm actually not actively practicing right now. When I uh, moved to Maryland, I started working at Children's Hospital in the emergency room, and that's in Washington, D.C., and uh, that's where I had been. So I spent years over there um, working in the emergency room, and really, honestly, that's where I saw so much of the, the gaps in our healthcare system. There are families that were coming in um, having you know, gotten a prescription that they could not afford to fill, and so coming back to the emergency room for more acute care when they could have been managed in other ways, you know, watching families who did have coverage struggle, watching families who didn't have coverage and had no resource but the emergency room, and that's in the pediatric world where we really have really high coverage rates for our kids. So imagine what's happening on the adult side. Yeah, and, uh, you know, having worked in the healthcare industry, of course, not at nowhere near your level, but I've worked with uh, several RNs and other uh, doctors uh, I, I, managing a home health care agency for seniors to age in place inside of their homes. And we would assign a, um, a home health aide, a certified nurse assistant to come in and administer medication and do other um, private duty tasks. Um, and, and some, um, and, and, and then, of course, we would also work with registered nurses. I had a whole new insight into uh, the aging in place inside of your home rather than the pediatric side. But I had an opportunity right. to get my get my feet wet inside of the healthcare industry. And we're, we're going to talk about that later in this interview. But it is it is complex, sometimes very confusing and sometimes disappointing, um, especially with insurance and seeing people who have no insurance try to figure out and, and, and really sometimes come up with their very last penny to pay for their medical bills. And that's been a very difficult pill, no pun intended, for me to swallow um, seeing you know, elderly people who have no money and trying to pick, figure out how they're going to pay for prescription drugs. That's tough. Yeah, I, I it's, see it all it's the really time. the way the system exactly. I mean, the way the system is run right now, we're really you know, taking dignity away from people in their senior years you know, having them spend down, putting them into tough situations, creating tensions between family members of who's going to take care of the parents and, and this financial burden. I, that's just wrong to me. I don't think that people should work all their lives only to think that that's what their future is going to be, that they might, in the blink of an eye, in a two-day acute illness, spend away everything that they've saved. Not in this country. Just just not in this country. We can't let that let that happen. Another another career that you have is that you're a best-selling author. Talk about that. What 
Talk about some of the books that you've written and some of the notoriety that you've gained as as an author. You know, this was a this was a side venture. So on days when I wasn't working a shift in the emergency room, I just dabbled in writing. And this was at the encouragement of my husband. Um, and so I've actually reconnected with some people who know my books on the campaign trail. I've knocked on doors and had some people open my open the door and say, "Wait a minute." aren't you? And I said, well, I didn't know you recognized me, but, and that doesn't happen very often, but you know, there are those rare occasions where our worlds collide. This is something that I just took on because I'm a lifelong reader. I love literature. I love the written word and how we get to express um, different ideas and concepts. And what I did, I started writing about the history of Afghanistan and the current and past trials and tribulations of people, of individual people, fictional people, having gone through years of war or having to leave the country because of, you know, fear of being targeted by a group like the Taliban. And so I've put these real world issues, which are really the consequences of policy into the form of novels. And the novels deal with, you know, political corruption, um, opioid addiction in Afghanistan, which mirrors what's happening in the United States as well, of immigration, of domestic violence, of gender inequality, all of these issues that are truly universal, uh, but written about them in the unique Afghan context. And uh, it's been a joy. It's been able to, I've been able to travel around the world and speak to different people in different countries about these books, but really about the larger issues that we're tackling um, and to do so also with middle graders two of my books are for middle grade readers so I get to go into middle schools and talk to students about some of these issues as well you, your career to me is wildly interesting and you're, you're I, I think you and I are I, and I, I would never out a another woman or a woman's age because my wife would stand over me and hit me in the head if I did that <laughs> but I'm 32 years old and I know that you're in your 30s somewhere and we're just we're not too far apart you have accomplished we're not far apart but I well I you don't have to out me I'll out myself I'm 40 oh. years old I turned 40 okay. on the campaign trail so you wow. know, maybe a year ago I had different ideas about what I would be doing on my birthday but um, but this year, uh, my birthday was just a blur. I don't even remember what I did for my birthday, but it, I turned 40, and, and here it is. It was on the campaign trail. Well, hap- yeah, the birthdays after 30 are a blur, and I just try not to remember them because every birthday I have more and more gray hair. And, you know, instead, you know, I, I keep thinking maybe I'm going to get taller, but I am just keep growing out. So um, it's, it's okay. It's just like it's, it's life. It's fine. Um, and I like to eat. Um, so you, you, your career is fascinating. And did you ever think at, that you, you know, two years ago, maybe even five years ago, that the confluence of your, your life would lead you to ultimately jump into a congressional race here in Maryland's 6th Congressional District? No, I didn't. Um, and I say that, though I will tell you that some of my family members, when I tell them that, they're like, Nadia, what are you talking about? When you were a little girl, you talked about how you want to be president of the world. And we, we, and I do have in my family some people who were political in different ways. You know, my, one of my grandfathers was a, a governor of a, a region in Afghanistan. One of my, my great-grandfathers was also involved with one of the kings in Afghanistan. But this is, I mean, I'm talking about another world, another time has nothing to do with here. So none of that legacy 
is uh, has any part of what I'm doing right now. Um, but I will say, I think what's what's been interesting about this year, the last two years, it's that people from all walks of life are stepping up to get engaged and to get involved and to run because they're seeing a need. We're seeing a void. And I think where leadership may be lacking, activism is stepping up. And that's really exciting. I think it's going to be a good turn. We're going to see a fresh kind of energy really take hold and hopefully propel some some positive change in policies and in our representation. I would love to see the next Congress sworn in early January of 2019 to be the most diverse Congress in the history of our country with more women than we can ever think thought possible. Having a daughter and having a wife who is also very politically astute and a lot smarter than I am on many of the issues. And I always defer to her opinion because she, she invariably gets it right. Um, I just I think that we need more women in Congress and we, we need more women in public office. And I'm sure I'm not going to get an argument out of you on this issue. But for me, um, Nadia, the turning point of just really getting involved. I mean, even OK, as a journalist, it's, it's one thing where we present a story and we allow people to make up their minds. But when November 8th, 2016 happened. It was the first time in my life, and I, and I was a former Republican turned independent, and I'm very centrist in how I approach things and somewhat libertarian. I don't really have a political home, but the mm-hmm. election of Donald Trump has just absolutely inspired me to, number one, just be a better human being for my family, be a better friend, because we have a president at this time in our, in our nation's history – who I believe is a fundamentally indecent person in all aspects of his life. And I am, I'm ashamed that this man has been elected president of the United States. And I ask myself every day, how could something like this happen in what I believe to be one of the greatest countries in the world? And, you know, for having our democracy, our Republic, how could this happen? And I see so many women join the, not just the fight, but and a movement. And I have never seen anything like this. And I've been following politics ever since I was probably 17 or 18 and really heavily involved in the process. But 2016, 2017, 2018, this is the year of the woman where women say, no more. We are not going to be, you know, this, this just can't happen. And I, and I love it because so many new people like yourself join this movement to say, this is this is unacceptable in this country. Did Donald Trump at all inspire you to launch a congressional campaign, Nadia? So it's tough to hear Donald Trump and inspire in the same sentence, but mm-hmm. but yes, mm-hmm. you know, was, did he have some kind of causal relationship to what I did? Maybe, you know, he did. But I'll tell you this: having lived in New York for a time. Donald Trump, in my mind, was the guy with the dirty casino, the failing casino in Atlantic City. He was the guy with the just, (laughs) you know, overly lavish, just grotesque kind of, you know, buildings in New York. His name just emblazoned on there. He was the guy from the pageants, the beauty pageants, who liked rating women on a scale of one to ten and wanted them, Mm. you know, 
walking around stage in a bikini. I mean, this, that's the man. So, you know, rotating door for who his spouse was. It, just, it was, that was the entity. And I, in no way, shape or form could ever have imagined that this country would elect that man having seen the things that he had done, the things he said, it's just, he was doing his best to give us reasons not to elect him. And yet this country elected him. So yes, I take issue with Donald Trump being our president, but people voted for him. I mean, you can debate the, the qualifications of the, of whether or not we should have an electoral college, but the point is he became president in the system that we currently have. Yeah, um, plus or minus on. Russian involvement, you know, but but he's there. So my concern is not so much Donald Trump because his days are limited. I'm not sure exactly how many days it's going to be. I mean, I'm hopeful <laughs> it's it's not going to be a double term. But what's problematic is that there is a movement of people who elected this man to the highest office in our country, and that there's a movement of people who continue to support him and his programs and who really defend him. And uh, and then, of course, even within our Congress, we've got a good number of people who just stay silent when he is committing some of the most egregious acts we could imagine. Well, that's the definition of political cowardness, and I see it every day. And I left the Republican Party in April of 2017, and I I should have left a lot sooner because I saw my party, the party of my grandfather, that believed that hard work, entrepreneurship, and a, a belief that, that this country is the last best hope of Earth, we, we, the Republican Party was different a, a long time ago. We're talking about the Republican Party of Dwight Eisenhower and even to an extent Ronald Reagan where we mm-hmm. – you know, and I just – I saw it continue to drift away, and, and I said this is not a – this is not a party. This is a cult of personality that worships at the altar of somebody who is disgusting and using your word grotesque in every possible way. I, I think most politicians have some sort of redeeming quality about them when even though if I fundamentally disagree with that politician in every way possible, there's something that is redeeming about people in general, that there's a quality that sticks out, and everyone has it, but there is not a single empathetic gene inside of this man that represents us as the president. I see it every day, and look what's happening right now. A policy that would separate children from their parents who cross the border, and not only that, this administration are habitual liars, and we should call them that, and I wish more of the media Nadia would come out and say, no, this is not a misspoken uh, truth. This is a lie. We need to say what a lie is because how else are we going to distinguish that? We can't blur those lines any longer. The media has a job to say, no, this president is lying. He lies every single day. His administration goes out and lies to the American people every single day, and we cannot tolerate it. And so here we are today. And we have so many people who are riled up. They're fired up because this is just not the America that we recognize. And this man was largely elected on saying that um, the immigrants are basically saying immigrants are bad people, banning Muslims from coming into our country, which is – I can't (laughs) – 
what where where are we living that this could even possibly happen and an entire political party would have this guy's back and like you said they're not saying anything they remain silent they just remain silent and that's why i think nadia 2018 this is the year where i really think that that we're going to overturn i think we're going to we're do, do a lot of things and one is i believe that we're going to take back the house i sincerely believe that and and when i say we i think i'm, I'm referring to democrats cuz i'm not a democrat i'm an independent but i think the democrats will take back the house and hopefully restore some sanity into the political process and then uh i don't know what's going to happen with with trump but i mean i hope for the sake of getting him out of there sooner, maybe Robert Mueller can speed up his investigation. But nonetheless, <laughs> if he loses re-election, that would be great because I would love to see somebody defeat him the way that I think most of us would. And that's just a good yeah. old-fashioned fight about issues. And speaking of issues, I think you're the way running – yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah. I think the way it's going to – the way it will play out is if people just – people should continue to be themselves. If Trump continues to be himself – he will fire enough people up, get enough people charged up that I think we're going to see some really positive change. And on, uh, on the other end, um, we just need to be ourselves too. And if our values are that we stand up for the rights of all, not just the rights of a few, and that if we you know, take a, a, a holistic view on the issues, whether it's the environment or, or immigration or education system and, and address what our country truly needs that reflect American values of taking care of each other, looking out for your neighbors, welcoming people, having tolerance in this country. We are just ourselves. We offer so much more than what we Trump do. is. And I think that's what people will respond to. And, and I, I've seen some true decency shine through in the light of, uh, in, in, in spite of Donald Trump. Um, I, I am, I've seen some good things happen from people. And, you know, there are some Republicans that are, coming around and, and taking on this president, but not very many. And the Republicans who do speak out, they typically lose their primaries. Look what happened to Mark Sanford down in South Carolina. He spoke out against Trump. Yeah. Trump endorsed his opponent. And as I said earlier, I think there's a call to personality. They're afraid to take this guy on. But if a large majority of the Republican Party is has shifted over to the, the, the Trumpian philosophy of, of governance – which is – I really think that their only philosophy is how can we piss off liberals? How can we make Democrats mad? That is no way to run a government. Bipartisanship has become a dirty word in politics, and I, I love to see people from both sides of the, the aisle get together and work on legislation. And I think that happens more than what we see in public, but I think that uh, what we need is more of that. And so, yeah, running you know, for, I grew up with yeah. a bipartisan. I grew up in a bipartisan household. So my my father is one of those, you know, old school Republicans. He was an immigrant, came to this country, became a small business owner. So when I was young, I remember from a very young age, though, there was something about the Democratic values that appealed to me. So I remember getting into these little arguments with my dad and, and, you know, screaming, not screaming, but like teasing him with no dad, Walter Mondale, Walter Mondale. And we get into it at the house. Um, but you know, now my daughter asked my dad, she, she heard me saying this one day that my dad was a Republican and he's changed his registration since, but uh, he, she asked him, she said, how could you do that? Why would you be a Republican? Dad? And, and he said, sweetheart, let me just tell you, it was very different back then. 
and that I think speaks to what you mentioned earlier is these, these, it was just a different approach. It was yeah. a different uh, approach to American values. And right now you, you don't really hear me talk about Republicans. I don't demonize Republicans. I don't see the value in demonizing people that I need to work with. I think there's a way to stand on my values, stand on my deals, and put forth ideas that don't compromise who I am as a Democrat, but understand that I've got to be able to work with people to move forward and to get some progress. Well, let's talk about this race, your congressional race. There's eight candidates running. You're one of them, and you have often been mentioned as one of the, let's say, top five, whatever that means. I I haven't seen any conclusive polling, but this is an interesting race in that one of your opponents is spending an exuberant amount of money, and this is his second, and I'm speaking about David Trone, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to attack anyone, but I will say that people are concerned in this race about the amount of money being spent on one congressional seat, and the question of, is money in politics, is it, you know, even though this individual says he takes money from no lobbyist PACs or special interests, but is it a question of self-funding to the tune of $13, 15000000 million? Is that equally as egregious as accepting money? But there's a lot of money being spent on this race. It's a large district. You live in Potomac. We're close by in North Potomac, and the district extends mm-hmm. all the way up to Garrett County. And overall, I think it takes about four and a four and a half hours to get from one end of the district to the other. And that's, that's a lot of territory to cover. And you go up to 70, of course, and then you hit Western Maryland. And so your experience is you've been campaigning really all over the place. So yep. I want to talk about your platform, the issues that you are talking most about and what voters are talking to you about. So you hit a lot of doors. You're, you're at these forums, and we see, like you said, we see one another. And what are the issues that you're hearing most from the Democrats in the 6th District and maybe even Republicans and independents? What are those you know, top three or four issues that they're saying constantly, here's what I want you to focus on when you're elected to represent, represent us as a member of Congress? Sure. The top issue is health care. There's no question about it. It's on everybody's mind whether or not they have. I mean, most people that I'm talking to um, have some form of health insurance. Some have struggled to get that that, that insurance, uh, have taken specific jobs in order to get coverage uh, for their family members, for themselves. People have complained about the cost of their coverage. So, you know, people who have gone through the Affordable Care Act and gotten on, you know, coverage on the marketplace are also complaining about their premiums. And me as a small business owner, I've seen the premiums go up. The last year, our premiums oh, yeah. went up 33%. We provide health coverage for our, our employees. So, um, so we definitely feel that it's something that we can, we can do, but you, you see it. It's, it has an impact on, on, on people's wallets. And while premiums are going up, deductibles are also getting bigger and out-of-pocket costs are expanding as well. So there's a lot of room in the healthcare conversation not to just talk about, you know, should we cover people, should we not cover people? Also to talk about the costs that are built in, the costs that are making the system unsustainable as it is. And that's where I think there's a lot of work to be done. I do believe we need to get to 
where everybody is covered. I do believe we need to, need to get to universal coverage. I think the insurance companies are really, uh, you know, parasites who get into the system. They're making money off of something that should just be a service. So uh, that's, that's a top issue. People are talking about it, and they, they respond really when, when we talk about costs being a factor. Um, I think one of the other issues is education, of course. Whether people are worried about their kids who are in public schools and they're worried about safety in those schools, uh, gun violence, yeah. or if they're talking about college and student loans, and especially some of these people have – um, their children may be headed to college and they're looking at how much they've been able to save and what kind of loans they're going to have to take out and what is their, what's the debt that their child is going to leave that four-year education with. And at the same time, they're thinking about responsibilities of taking care of their parents as well. So that's that sandwich generation. Um, and the other issue is really always economy. I mean, you look at an area like Hagerstown, economy is a big deal over there. And it's, it's an area that you know very well is, is hurting economically. I do, yeah. Uh, in terms of jobs. And I think that has a lot to do with some of the issues that we see in Western Maryland, including the opioid crisis. That's, that's a big issue. And this district is set up in a way that Montgomery County is clearly one of the dominant counties. Uh, economically, there's much more opportunity here in Montgomery County than there are than, than than opportunities exist in Hagerstown or Cumberland or all the way up in Garrett County around Deep Creek Lake. Now in, of course in Deep Creek it's a, a seasonal opportunity for for jobs and it's based on their, their tourism industry and to an extent Cumberland as well. Um, but you see these communities struggling. You see Hagerstown um where they're looking for people to set up shop, create new businesses, just like any anywhere else. And so I, I, one of the issues that I think Western Maryland looks at, and they see this district split up in such a, a diverse way, and they say, well, we have, a, we have members of Congress that represent us, but they often – and they will say this, and, I, and this is not a slam against John Delaney because I think John Delaney has been a – a fantastic congressman and he's a great guy and I wish him all the best in his bid for president. But I think that at first people were a little worried that a congressman would only represent Montgomery County's interest rather than spend time in Western Maryland and all the way up to Garrett and Cumberland and Allegheny or rather and and then in Washington County. So would you be that congressperson, Nadia? Would you spend time and get to know all of the, your constituents and and get up to Western Maryland just as much as you would be here in Montgomery County. Absolutely, and that comes back to my the other hat that I've worn as a pediatrician. You don't, you can't take care of people from behind some desk, or you can't really teleconference your way into a family's acute crisis. Um, and that's that's a that's a just a different approach. For me to work with families, I am used to sitting face-to-face and looking people in the eye and asking them what's wrong, asking them what's ailing them and what are the different factors that come together. And that's what we're doing on the campaign trail, too, is where I walk into rooms not just to talk at people and tell them this is what I want to do, but also to listen and engage them and say, you know, do, do, am I an expert in what is happening in uh, in Western Maryland? No. And if any of the other candidates say that they are, then 
they may not be that uh, truthful to what's happening. Because in, in order for you to really, really know, you've got to sit there, you've got to be there, you've got to come from there to really get what's going on and to live that reality is so important. When I went to Hagerstown, I sat in a, it's a, it's like a little ice cream slash coffee shop in the main square of Hagerstown. Uh, And I sat there just to watch, you know, the one on the corner, right? And and we we had just met with the chamber of commerce. So um, I sat there and I just wanted to people watch and observe and see, you know, what is the flow of, of pedestrians who are walking around and, and you could really actually tell that the area was hurting economically and that people had a diversity of needs um, that were very, very different. It's very, very different from Montgomery County, but you won't know that unless you go there and you talk to people and you sit with them and you, and you look at the way they're living, not as a spectator, but rather as someone who's walking in to figure out what's wrong and develop solutions with people, not for people. Yeah, and being able to talk to normal, everyday, average people that may not follow the political conversation but would still like to have a front row seat to their representative. And one thing that Congressman Delaney did so well is he set up shop and often held town hall meetings in western Maryland and came and set up um, uh, office hours, one-on-one office hours in different portions of the district where people could come in and talk to him about anything that they want. And he would have a staffer with them and they would take notes and then he would get back to you. And I thought that that was a responsible move from your member of Congress. And he, he just like Jimmy Raskin, who I see as someone is very hands-on down in the eighth congressional district. Um, Congressman Delaney has also done the same and that's important. And I think that just watching your campaign from the outset, that you would be that person to be able to, to show up. And that's all that people really want is for you to show up so they can talk to you about what their most important issues are, especially like my grandparents who late eighties, early nineties and father is a veteran, just like many aging parents. And he's had issues with the veterans administration and um, his member of Congress Delaney has helped him with certain issues. And so and then with Medicare and Medicaid, these are complex, mega, mega uh, government bureaucracies that is part of the job. And sometimes con- being a congressman, just like being a doctor, really the best doctors I've ever had were the best at customer service, Dr. Nadia. I got to tell you. And that's what really being a congressman is, is finding out what your constituents want you to do and then responding to them. And uh, that's that's a big part of the job. And you, you've shown such a, a level of poise and genuinely intellectual curiosity, and I see you always wanting to learn more from people, and that's that's a skill that I think you'll carry well into the house. Appreciate that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a lifelong student, and I think that you know, being able to speak with different kinds of people with different backgrounds, different set of issues, different set of concerns, it's it's really critical to that role of being a representative in Congress because you're not there to just be an executive and issue orders. It's it's actually quite the opposite. You're there to pull from the people, advocate for the people, and push forward um, some new ideas that can help those people that you're that you're supposed to represent. Um, and I think that's that's the beauty of the system. It's that we bring people on who show leadership but should actually work for the people. What do you see as your first year in Congress other than 
finding your way around. And, and having been a former congressional staffer, it literally almost took me a year to find my way around the Capitol Hill complex. So I don't think that's any different from members of Congress, because oftentimes I've seen member, members of Congress wander around the, the complex and kind of set in all of the uh, the, the monstrosity of the, the whole process. But what do you see as your first year in Congress or your first two years in Congress? What what accomplishments and measured accomplishments that you would want to achieve um, as a as a member? I think being that voice that speaks to some of the issues that I have gleaned from my conversations with people in the district are the most important to them, is being able to get in there and advocate on those issues. So whether it's on the education or around some smarter legislation for, uh, for, for guns, um, making sure that people are aware that there's so much room to fix the system when it comes to healthcare, that there are real gaps. You know, so part of it, I think, is going to be bringing real-life stories to the conversation, getting in there and, and telling people uh, as they're, because the, the truth is any freshman member of Congress is not going to be getting in there and, you know, changing the world and putting out lots of legislation that's automatically going to pass. But so much of it, as you know, already, is going to be those conversations that happen, uh, those side conversations where you can really bring uh, some expertise and say, hey, I think we should tweak this particular piece of legislation in this direction because the implications of it are such and such. And that's really what I want to do with the front lines experience that I have in healthcare is saying, okay, if we're going to put forth a bill, let's put forth one that will actually be implemented that delivers true care for people. It delivers a real improvement for people, not just a new piece of legislation. Um, so it's really going to be a lot of talking. I would imagine I'm going to be doing a lot of talking. I've been doing a lot of talking ever since I started this <laughs> campaign. But right. I think there's going to just be a lot of different conversations, bringing a nuanced perspective, bringing a fresh perspective, and walking in without any previous relationships. I'm not beholden to anyone. I don't have to answer to anyone other than the people of the 6th District of Maryland. And I don't have any of those, you know, backroom deals, no alliances. So what I bring is truly the values that I think people want to see in Congress. Let me ask you this question. The 6th District is diverse, where there's a very conservative area and there's a, a more progressive area. We're in the progressive part, there's no doubt. Montgomery County is a progressive bastion, and that plays itself out, and then you move up into – uh, Western Maryland and portions of Frederick and all the way up to Garrett. And it's a very culturally conservative area. And let me ask you this question. And Nadia, I, I, I want to just get personal a little bit, and I hope that's okay. And you and I had these conversations. Um, how do you bridge that gap between right-wing Republicans and progressive Democrats here in Montgomery County, because it seems like we're so far apart and that it's so polarized, very politicized. And this district mm -hmm. is a perfect example of that. How would you, as a member of Congress, a Democrat, how would you, what are those conversations that you would need to have with many of the hardcore Republicans, say in Clear Spring or Hancock or, um, you know, going up to Cumberland? What's what's that uh, what's that process? I think it starts with treating people like people, listening to people, hearing them out, you know, and understanding 
getting down to the roots of what's going on and why are they saying what they're saying. It's the same thing, you know, a child who comes into the emergency room with abdominal pain, for example, it might be appendicitis or it might be that mom and dad are getting a divorce. Sometimes people take a certain position because of uh, they've come to that conclusion for a certain set of reasons. And I think that's where you really have to dig a little bit, get to know people, figure out what's going on in their lives. Um, when we talk about, you know, attitudes around immigration, around uh, diversity, uh, sometimes you've got to peel away the layers and figure out, you know, why have you come to this conclusion? One of the, one of the things that I've recognized and people warned me, they said, well, you know, someone of your background may have a hard time going out to those areas of Western Maryland. What is that? Um, you know, Frederick and beyond. My family coming from Afghanistan originally, and perhaps because my family is of the Muslim faith, you know, that's maybe something that people warned me that, you know, you may have a hard time in this particular climate. But what I said to them was that it makes it all the more important for me to get out there and sit with these people face to face. And so I don't shy away from those conversations. I do engage with people. And I think what I'm able to do in those conversations is disarm them a bit because sometimes we break through stereotypes. Sometimes we're able to find some kind of common ground. And I think that's really important is to always look for some kind of common ground uh, so that there's a bridge that you can work on. There's always going to be disagreement. Am I going to agree on the, on the, on the issues with everybody who's in Western Maryland? No, but I'm also not in agreement with everybody who's in Montgomery County. There's so much diversity in our ideas, and there are so many issues that we're all thinking about, but it's all about finding some kind of common ground with each and every person so that we can move forward in a conversation in a civil manner and having some kind of respect for one another. Right, and, you know, visiting Western Maryland, there are issues... Many of the Republicans there, their issues are different from Montgomery County's, whereas Montgomery County, we're focused, not we, but some, I mean, many people are, rightly so, focused on economic justice issues, social justice issues, whereas people in Western Maryland are deadly fearful that the government is coming to take away their guns. And I, I know that because I lived there most of my life. I know that there are many proud gun owners that are truly some of the finest salt of the earth people there, but they are afraid that their Second Amendment rights will be infringed on. And guns are the number one, number two, number three issue on everyone's mind because we're seeing so frequently the unimaginable horror of children going to school and being gunned down time and time again with the same responses, the same tropes of thoughts and prayers. I'm tired of that. There must be something we can do. And I don't want to hear from my elected officials, this is just the way it is, because we're a nation that is a, uh, you know, we're a free society, we're an open society, and this is just going to happen. And I don't buy that, Nadia. I don't believe that we can just chalk it off chalk it up as, well, we live in an open society. People are going to do crazy things, and there's nothing we can do to stop people. What do you think? What do you think we can do to, to, to fight this? We have a gun problem. We have a gun lobby. And look, I see what the NRA has done, and I know that one part of the NRA 
believes in educating people on being responsible gun owners. But then there's another, there's a second half of the NRA, that the other part where they will crucify anyone who is outside of their their scorecard, right? They grade these lawmakers on every cycle, and you know if you don't get an A, then you're somehow deemed um, to be the enemy of the NRA, and they are one of the most recognized and irresponsible special interest groups out there at this time. What would you do? What 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 are your what is your plan on the on fighting back against the NRA and working to protect kids in schools. Yeah, this is obviously an issue that uh, hits home for me because I'm a pediatrician, because my husband covers the hospital, um, covers trauma at at an area hospital where he's dealing with victims of gun violence on a fairly regular basis. And, um, And that his practice is one that on the outpatient basis I manage I have been managing up until this campaign. So it's something that we see. I also have two children who are in public school. The other two are too young, obviously. But I've asked them, you know, right after the Vegas shooting, that massacre that happened in Vegas, the next day my children had a drill in school. And um, I, after that I asked them, I said, what, what is it that you were preparing for in this drill? I wanted to just get a sense of what had been told to them. So I always do these open-ended questions. And they said, well, Mom, they told us that we just have to get ready in case there's a fire or a tornado or a volcano, um, which is unlikely, I think. But And then after a Dr. moment's Nani, pause, my I daughter said, I'm here. <clears throat> Hello? Are you there? I may have not lost Dr. Nadia. Sometimes we have technical difficulties on this show. I don't understand why. Hello? I hate dead air, but I'm going to see if we can get her back. Hello? Hi, I'm here. Dr. Nadia, are you still there? I'm here. I hope we didn't lose her. Well, I think we may have lost Dr. Nani, unfortunately, and I hate dead air on radio, so um, maybe she'll call back in. Um, I will send her a note, because we were just getting into the mix of this conversation, unfortunately, um, and now we may have lost her, so I'm going to text her, but she was going to be a great interview. I, I hope we get her back. Call back in. I am sending her a Facebook note, and this is embarrassing sometimes when we lose people. That's okay. We can do it fine. I'm sending her a note to call back in furiously. <laughs> Dr. Donnie, we may have hey. lost you. I think you're back. 
I'm back. Yes, I could hear you. I think you couldn't hear me. I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> so we were, um, you'd asked me about guns in schools, gun violence in schools, and, um, and the role of the NRA. Um, and that's somewhere where, like I said, uh, it's, it's Hello? obviously hits home. Can you hear me? Hello, Dr. Nadia? Yes, can you hear me? 